technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... I am also very excited about 5G. It's going to enable even different kinds of uh, computer architectures where more and more processing and computing can be done at the edge. But because it's so robust and so powerful, it isn't entirely clear what the key uses will be initially. There's a lot of promise in open innovation. Instead of the lab being your world, the world can become your lab. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Open innovation isn't a new idea, but it is for the telecommunications industry. For generations, it siloed its departments and staked its turf. And where did it get them? Connectivity was just taken for granted. That's changing with 5G. Communication service providers recognize they need to rebuild their corporate culture and embrace partnerships to make the next generation wireless technology viable and profitable for all involved. It's also critical, according to the professor and faculty director of the Garwood Center for Corporate Innovation at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of three books on the subject, Henry Chesbrough, to embrace open innovation. But what exactly is open innovation? I define open innovation as a distributed model of innovation involving knowledge flows across organizational boundaries for both monetary and non-monetary purposes. All right, now what does that actually mean? (laughs) Well, it's one sentence, but you're right, there's a lot in it. It means that organizations that used to do everything from the laboratory to the market inside their own four walls are instead doing things much more openly and collaboratively along that journey. And that has two primary flows, one from the outside in, from the outside to our own innovation process and markets, and then the second set of flows from the inside out, from our internal technology and research to other pathways to market. So those are the two main flows of open innovation. Outside in, inside out. I suppose at the end of the day, what we're saying here is that if you really want to be an innovator, you have to open your organization to outside individuals. You can't accomplish your goals by yourself. That's right. I think the underpinning of this idea is that all of us know more than any one of us and that none of us on our own know enough these days to be able to achieve all that we can. And if we do embrace this more open model, we can get a lot more done and we can often get it done faster. So then how has your thinking evolved over the course of the last 20 years of writing a series of books on this exact topic? Well, you're you're right. The first book came out almost 20 years ago. And at that time, uh, my thinking was, uh, I think there's been a shift in the models that we use from a, a vertically integrated model from a complete control from start to finish where we do it all ourselves uh, to a, a more open model. And then here are some examples of how that's working in different industries. And I thought, gee, if I describe this and explain the, the change in the logic, then organizations will start to change. 
Uh, and some of that has been true, but the main development in my own thinking is the realization that the hard part of this is not describing the new model. The hard part of this is embracing the change throughout the organization. And that's a much more difficult task than I had understood when I got started on this path. So then what needs to change in the environment and the culture to make any organization more open to open innovation? There's a certain amount of unlearning that has to happen. Uh, many organizations with strong technical staffs uh, have this uh, syndrome that is sometimes called the not invented here syndrome, meaning that if we didn't do it, uh, it must not be very important or it must not be very good because we are the ones that will do it right. And we, we know the important things that need to be done. And that pride comes often from a track record of success. So these these departments have earned their reputation and their pride, but we have to unlearn some of that and let go of some of that in order to take advantage of what's available on the outside. So that's, I think, uh, one of the things that is a source of friction that gets in the way sometimes. So then if past is prologue, let's look back so we can look ahead as to what open innovation means in the future. The, the smartphone, for example, it predates the iPhone launch of 2007, but is widely believed to have kicked off a wave of innovation that previously didn't exist. What was it about this particular handset that others in the past failed to accomplish? I agree with you that with the benefit of hindsight, the smartphone has been an amazing change uh, in computing and in our daily lives. Um, and so how, how did we get there? Uh, it didn't all happen at once. And it was uh, a several forces that came together. Uh, one would be the idea that on the phone that we use to make phone calls and send text messages, uh, we could actually access video content. Uh, another would be that uh, things that showed and, and shared our uh, archive of music and other things, that could all be there too. And all this could be in your pocket. A separate thing was this whole idea of uh, an app economy that we could have uh, not one or two, but dozens, even hundreds of applications on our phone, and that companies would actually make businesses to create and sell us these applications. Uh, you know, these were things that didn't all happen overnight, but over time, that collectively, they really have shifted us uh, to a sort of a smartphone-centric world. And then I would also say the young people get credit here because us old dinosaurs you know, we were dragged kicking and screaming into this world, but they embraced it with passion. Uh, and so I think uh, all these things came together. Well, it's fascinating you say that because I remember when the iPhone first came out, um, uh, Mike Lazaridis or Jim Balsley at, at BlackBerry, one of the two were quoted as saying that they thought it was a toy. Uh, and like you could compare that device against any other at the time smartphone device and under the hood, it wasn't any more or less powerful than anything else that was already available. Yeah, in fact, I uh, was working at the time with another uh, cell phone manufacturer, and we'll, we'll leave their name out of this, but uh, they had done a teardown analysis buying an iPhone and taking it apart to see exactly what was inside. And they told me that their overall feeling was one of relief 
because all of the piece parts were things they already knew about from companies they were already working with. And in fact, they were they were buying in much larger quantities at the time. So they were getting better pricing on the same stuff. So their assessment of this was, phew, you know, nothing we can't handle, no real challenge here. I don't think they saw it as a toy necessarily, but the truth is like the first iPhone, it wasn't that great a phone. Uh, you know, the antenna wasn't that good. The battery life wasn't that long. Um, you know, the, the software was better, but it, it was a little bit kludgy and you had to kind of learn how to, how it worked. So uh, it, it wasn't beautiful uh, at, from the very beginning. It took time. But what's interesting to me about the iPhone as the example is when it was in fact released, not only from the hardware perspective, nobody was particularly impressed, but they didn't even have that app store at the time they themselves had to open themselves up to the broader community for success. That's right. And we're talking here about the value of openness. And so uh, at the time that the iPhone was announced in the New York Times article that announced the iPhone, Steve Jobs was quoted as saying, you know, most of what you're going to need on this phone is being provided by us at Apple. And you know, we've, we've made it possible for a few of these other apps, too, that maybe we didn't get to yet. Uh, but you're not going to need very many of them, and you're, it's not going to be a, that big a part of your experience. Well, with the passage of about a year's time, and the, the, uh, the App Store does get opened, there were hundreds of thousands of applications that developed for the iPhone. So uh, Jobs was spectacularly wrong at the launch, but the architecture was there to open up at launch, and so even though the people leading the charge didn't think it was going to be very important, the rest of us got a vote, too. And we decided, you know what? We really like the idea of getting different things on our iPhone. And each of us have a different configuration of apps, even to this day. The thing is, though, is first mover advantage isn't always an advantage. Sir, iPhone quickly realized they needed to open up to the developer community. Uh, Netscape Navigator is the foundational software package that created the World Wide Web, but we don't use it today. I mentioned BlackBerry, the first commercially successful smartphone. Nobody uses that anymore. Microsoft owned Skype, but Zoom ran circles around them during the pandemic lockdowns. How can a company capitalize on open innovation? I completely agree with your observation that uh, getting there first is neither necessary nor sufficient to, to winning the game. What is necessary and perhaps sufficient is to come up with new and better business models to commercialize those great technologies. So we were already mentioning with the iPhone, the ability to have uh, all these apps uh, and the entire app economy that was there. And then the business model for that app store itself evolved over time. I think uh, in the one of the meetings that I was told about by a guy named John Riccatello of Electronic Arts, uh, Jobs and Apple were presenting the App Store uh, and saying, hey, our, we're doing all the marketing, we're delivering the customer, we collect the money, and for these reasons, we think we should take 70% of the revenue and we'll give you, the app developers, 30%. And the app developers didn't like it, but more fundamentally, they said, listen, if you want us to bring new apps and develop new technologies for this platform, you've got to give us a bigger piece of the pie. So as Riccatello tells it, in that meeting, Jobs flipped the entire formula and gave 70% to the developers, and Apple took 30%. 
Uh, and that was enough to stimulate a lot of interest and a lot of creation. Uh, so that was, in a sense, tuning the business model to make it something that became commercially much more successful. Uh, and then, you know, another quick example would be in the in the browser wars. You were mentioning Netscape Navigator. You know, Google was by some measures, uh, you know, and Chrome. These were things that were, you know, the 18th, 20th, 25th browser. But it's the dominant one today. And I think it's because there's a better business model behind it to collect all the data, to package it and understand it, sell it on to advertisers in a very efficient auction mechanism. These were all pieces of the business model that have really allowed the, the Chrome browser to over, you know, do what Netscape Navigator was unable to do. There's a difference, though, between capitalizing on innovation, as we had seen Jobs do. He first kept this as a closed device, recognized the need to open it up, opened it up, but still had that firm control until the industry basically said, as you point out, this isn't going to work for you unless you are more open. And so he was more open with the iPhone. But that's capitalizing on innovation. How do you extract value from it? Value extraction begins with value creation. I think too many companies skip the value creation part and go to the value extraction first and foremost. And we as customers, we can sense that. And if we see real value for us, we're often very willing to let our uh, suppliers make some money off of us as long as we're getting something we really want and need and can use. What really grinds my gears is when I see somebody trying to take money out of my pocket and they haven't given me much. Uh, and then it feels much more zero sum, uh, you win, I lose. So I think that's the first thing to say. Uh, the second thing to say is in the value capture piece of things, can you create a new stream of value uh, so that uh, in using Facebook uh, for our social uh, media, uh, we ask our friends to get on Facebook. This dates me now because this was a while ago that this was going on. <laughs> but Facebook has grown to over 2.4 billion users around the planet, and they have spent no money on marketing because we have done it all for them. And we've done it for them because it makes that tool more useful for us. So we are creating the value for ourselves. And then Facebook has found a way to monetize that community uh, with the advertisers. So uh, that's, I think, uh, a very not so appreciated secret of capturing value in the open domain is finding new streams of revenue uh, from all the data and usage that openness enables. All right, let's unwind the last 14 minutes of our conversation by me asking you about a quote from something you've written. You wrote, Open innovation is not a panacea. What do you mean by that? I am as excited about openness as uh, anybody, but having looked at it for some time now, it has to be said that more openness does not always win, and organizations that are sometimes very open at other times are not so open. So it is not a panacea, an answer to all of your problems. Uh, there is the challenge of having uh, your, if you're trying to capture some value somewhere in your system, uh, you are going to need some control point somewhere that isn't completely open. Uh, 
for everybody else, or else you will become uh, commoditized by the others who are copying directly with you and from you. So that's the first thing. But the second is that this means that openness becomes a strategy rather than a religion. Uh, and so we now think about when to be open and whether to be open uh, versus uh, always being open all the time. Uh, Tesla would be an interesting example here. Uh, out in their charging network, they have announced that they're going to provide all of their patents for others to use in the charging systems. And the, what they're really trying to create is an interoperable uh, system of vehicle recharging. Uh, now, so far, a lot of the other companies haven't taken them up on the offer, but they, that offer is out there. They're trying to be very open. But when you look at their battery technology in the car, uh, they've got a joint venture with Panasonic, and they're doing some new research on new kinds of batteries on their own. It's very closed. It's very controlled because it's a fundamental part of the value of the vehicle. So the same company is being opened in some parts of its business and pretty protective in other parts of its business. Then let's apply that to the telecommunications sector. Telecom companies provided the backbone for innovative products and services like Facebook and the Apple App Store, but have spent the last 10 years being called dumb pipes. How did that happen? It's a very good point. I think uh, with the advent of openness and the spread of technologies, and I would say also technical standards have helped here, uh, things that the telcos used to do uh, that would deliver dial tone wherever you wanted it, uh, that became a commodity. And uh, dial tone became taken for granted. Uh, now, the legacy telcos still have to work very hard and invest a lot of money to deliver the dial tone. But consumers expect that now. And then it's like, OK, I've got dial tone. Now what can you do for me? Uh, and indeed, the telcos for decades have been collecting all of this data from us in our daily usage but they did not know what to do with it. And in some cases, the regulators might have constrained what they could do with it as well. So the, the regulatory environment may be a piece of the action. By contrast, most of the innovation in the telecom sector has happened uh, higher up the stack in, in the services that are, are enabled by, you, you need the dial tone, but once you've got it, now you can do a whole bunch of new things. Facebook being an old example, uh, a newer example might be TikTok, and all these short little videos that people are using. A third example might be going to places like uh, any coastal city in China where your smartphone is your entire life. Uh, your credit card, your bank, uh, your whole communications network, uh, everything in China can be done on your smartphone now. Uh, so the, the amount of services that are being delivered is amazing. And so uh, that, I think, is where the action is now. And with that openness, uh, you now have new ways to try to differentiate and new ways to try to delight your customers. The foundation for 5G wireless is built on ecosystems, the types of things we've been talking about. It feels a lot like the App Store model that allows a CSP to turn to an enterprise and provide a bunch of different features and technologies that leverage 5G because it's got that ecosystem platform. How do we apply the lessons of open innovation to the ecosystems that will provide CSPs with the ability to offer new services to enterprise and avoid that dumb pipe moniker of 3G and 4G LTE. I am also very excited about 5G. 
it's going to enable even different kinds of uh, computer architectures where more and more processing and computing can be done at the edge. But because it's so robust and so powerful, it isn't entirely clear what the key uses will be initially. And so companies trying to roll out 5G and trying to build on top of 5G are going to have to take some risks and some do some experiments to see which things customers want and will pay for uh, early on. Uh, I think with 4G, if you think about when that came out, there was all this capability and performance at the time and people didn't quite know how it was going to be used. And it turned out that things like video were really important to getting 4G embraced. And the video in turn meant things like Instagram or TikTok or these other services that didn't exist when 4G was just getting started. So I think we're going to see something like this in 5G. We've, we've, it might be IoT related, industrial automation related. Uh, but as we were talking a moment ago, you're also going to need business models to sustain that. And in machine to machine communication, machines don't read advertisements. So we need a different way to monetize in that world. Then, and it's going to take trial and error and experimentation to find it. But I think, you know, five or 10 years from now, We'll, we'll, we won't even remember how we lived without it. It's fascinating. You, you made a, a statement a little bit earlier, and I want to come back to that. A lot of what we've been talking about when it comes to open innovation has been very consumer-centric, very consumer-facing. And in the telecommunications space, by and large, with the exception of the individual subscribers to a service, 5G is going to be more about enterprise. And how do we, as you have said, delight and thrill the enterprise customer who will build on 5G versus the individual end customer? I think one way to really engage uh, the B2B world, the industrial world, is to be more transparent and open in your architecture. This means things like including application programming interfaces, software development kits, reference designs, standards, ways that companies can take and build on top of what you've given them. Uh, and then in turn, they're going to take that set of services to particular markets and uses. And so for the 5G providers, uh, you don't know which of those uses are going to be most important first. So the smart thing to do is to enable many experiments to be done in parallel at the same time, and then pay very close attention to what's showing up and what's getting used. And then you can then do more to sustain and, and penetrate further in those areas. So I think this openness really works well in the B2B world too, but I agree with you that it works a little differently. And I, I can just imagine a, a legacy telecom executive, you know, you say the, the old dinosaur type getting a pit in their stomach, just hearing you say, you need to open your 5G wireless network to experimentation something that would never have been possible for the end enterprise under previous generations. It can be uh, terrifying uh, from a certain point of view. It can also be tremendously exciting from another point of view. Many of the telcos actually have corporate venture capital programs, and these corporate venture capital programs are investing in new startup companies, very much probing some of these new areas 
So if they actually go and spend time with their own internal staff in those programs, they're going to see a lot of those experiments already underway. And once they start to see some of this, it might be a little more comforting to realize, okay, if we open this up, will anybody come? You know, will we give a party and nobody shows up? But if you see that there are already a lot of people out there partying, uh, and yeah, they'll be glad to come to your party, uh, but here's what you got to do to get them to come to your party. Uh, I think that might be more comforting for many of them. So if we can't always predict what will delight and thrill an enterprise customer, but must be agile enough to respond quickly to these experiments, what are some of the best practices from within the telecom industry that should be applied to open innovation? One practice that's true in telecom, and it applies also outside of telecom, is large, capable companies have to learn how to work with startup companies. And that might seem like an odd combination, but the startups are bold and fearless and uh, they hustle, they move really, really fast, they turn on a dime. And, and these are things that very large companies really cannot do internally for the reasons we've already been discussing. But that's okay. If you can work with outside companies that can do this, and then engage with them, you can still get some of the benefit of all that. But you have to change your internal processes to work well with these external startups. Uh, two quick examples. One, intellectual property. Uh, the startup does not want you to steal their idea. So you have to figure out a way where you can give the startup protection for what they're trying to do and still find ways to protect what you're trying to add or build on top of it. So that's one set of things that have to be discussed. And there's usually a good talent in the organization to do that, but you have to prioritize it and put that at the head of the queue rather than the 13th or 20th thing you're going to work on. The second one's a little trickier. The things that once collaborations are underway, startups tell me their biggest frustration is the company takes too damn long to make a decision. It can be yes, it can be no. We can work with either one. What we can't work with is uh, we'll get back to you. Uh, and we'll get back to you in two weeks. And in two weeks, the meeting happened. Well, somebody wasn't able to make the meeting. So we need another meeting. And so, you know, weeks go by. And in startup world, that is a long time. And so companies working with startups have to create a set of processes that abbreviate and accelerate their internal response. And oftentimes, what startups are doing are it's being done at very small scale and the amount of money involved is quite small. And so the opportunity is to push down to the uh, frontline organization the ability to make small decisions quickly. And then if you're going to do something that's going to involve tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, sure, that, that can be reviewed in a more typical corporate process. But the mistake is to bring the big company processes to bear on every little decision that the startup needs to have made. I was going to ask you, what do companies get wrong when adopting open innovation principles? But it sounds like you've also answered that question. This gets back to your first question. What's been really hard about open innovation? It isn't about the model itself. It's about all the internal changes that have to happen to get the model to be used successfully. Uh, and if I may, I'll add one more category of those changes. When you have a lot of these external ideas show up on your doorstep because of open innovation, 
they need to be evaluated. Uh, and that means the legal people. That means your technical people. It means your procurement people. Uh, and all these support functions typically don't get any extra resources in their budgets, but suddenly there's all this new work to do. And this is another example of the challenges that can sink a good open innovation program is you can create so much internal congestion in those reviews, particularly in the support organizations, uh, that you can actually, instead of getting more innovation, you can actually throttle uh, the very innovation you're trying to achieve. There's a lot of promise in open innovation. Instead of the lab being your world, the world can become your lab. But it doesn't come for free. It's not a panacea. It will change the way you have to do business in order to get real value out of it. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting nokia.com slash insights. The Futurhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.